Father, we, uh, we appreciate the word of God. Lord, we appreciate your faithfulness to the word. And Lord, when you speak, you mean it. And uh, Lord, we can apply it to our lives and build our lives upon it. And so, Father, we see that today in our study. And we ask that that would just be an encouragement to us to trust you more fully. Father, we ask that you would bless our time today, that our hearts would be open to receive from you. Father, you know that some of us are coming here this morning that we, we need to be challenged. We've been in a place where, of compromise, perhaps. We've been in a place where uh, we're just sort of going through the motions. And Lord, today through your word, we invite you to come and challenge us and take us to the place that you want us to be, your desire for us. Father, you know that in a room like this, there are people that are coming that are hurting. With the hearts that are very distant, that wonder if you even know or hear or can see Lord, what they're going through. And today, Lord, we know that your word has the ability to come in and to comfort, and to touch and to bless. And so we pray you would do that as well. Father, you know the condition of our hearts. And we pray that you would do your work within each of us, just as we need it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, we are in Second Chronicles. Now, if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles available. You're going to want a Bible. It, it just makes it that much more interesting to uh, study along with us. So just kind of let the guys know. They'll, Adam, could you, if you need one, just say, yeah, I need one. I don't have one. And they'll take what, care of you and they'll get you one. If you don't own one, you can keep it. Now, we are studying. We have been looking at the dedication of the temple. We've been looking actually at the building I should say, of the temple. And today we come to the place of the dedication. This is what is going to make this this building that has been constructed, which is a great, wonderful building, grand in in size compared to everything else that was existing at that particular time, covered with all sorts of gold and jewels and bronze and and so on. And it's a great building, but it's just a building. And what we're going to look at today is what causes this building to go from this amazing structure to the literal house of God, the place where he would choose to dwell upon the earth. And so we left off in verse 2 of chapter 5. So go ahead and pick up there. Starting in verse 2, it says, And then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Now, Solomon is the new king, as you know. David, we mentioned, was his dad. His dad had ruled for basically 40 years or so and and has passed off the scene. And now Solomon is the king. And and Solomon's main accomplishment as the king of Israel, at least as far as 2 Chronicles pays attention to, is the fact that he built this this, uh, temple structure there. And now when Solomon became king, uh, the temple would sit upon the top of a peak of Mount Moriah. David, his father, had already brought the key furniture, if you will, of the uh, tabernacle, what would go on to be the temple. He had already brought the key piece of furniture, which was the Ark of the Covenant, and he had brought that to Jerusalem, the city from which he was going to rule. But he didn't place that Ark upon uh, Mount Moriah, where the temple would be built. Rather, he placed it a little bit south, about 400 yards south. So here, if you have Mount Moriah, about 400 yards south of that, there was another high point on the mountains of Jerusalem there, and that became known as, or that place was, the city of David. And the city of David was this walled, basically, neighborhood, if you want to think of it. Think of a city and think of sort of a little section of that city, a neighborhood of that city, that would be walled around. Well, that became David's city. That became the place where his palace was, and somewhere within that walled compound of sorts, he set up a tent, and inside it, or a canopy, and inside of that canopy, he put the Ark of the Covenant. We read about that passage uh, as we were studying First Chronicles. Now, what Solomon is going to do is he's going to take it from this lower point in Jerusalem and he's going to transport it up to the newly built temple, to Mount Moriah there. And if you look at verses 3 and 4, it says, Now all the men of Israel, they assembled before the king at the feast, that is in the seventh month. And the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the Levitical priest brought them up. Now you recall that the, the design of the ark, it was built, and we have a picture of it here. It's the description of how it was to be built is given to us in the book of Exodus. There it says you should put poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. The ark itself, the rectangle, the box 
that's covered with these two angels at the top of it was not to be touched. You touched it, you died. And we saw an example of that as we were studying First Chronicles 13. So if you wanted to transport this ark, which they had to do, because remember, Moses and the tabernacle and all that, as they were coming out of slavery in Egypt to go to the promised land, they wandered. And so every week they were moving somewhere else and setting up shop and camping. So the ark had to be moved all the time. And the way that it had to be moved was by the Levitical priests, specific people, doing a specific thing, and that is carrying these poles. So you have these four men, these four priests that would come along, and they would grab these poles, and they would move it to where it had to go. And Solomon is very diligent to make sure that it is done the way that God said it was to be done. His father had erred in this, and the, the uh, result was catastrophic, particularly for the one person that touched it. But even in David's heart. And so Solomon makes sure he does it the proper way. He sends priests down to the city of David, and they transport this ark some 400 yards or so up to this newly built temple. Also in verse 3, notice that it says that it's the feast that is in the seventh month. Now remember, seventh month we might think, oh, July, oh, it's a summertime feast. And remember that the calendar, the Jewish calendar, worked on a different system than our calendar. We work on here in the United States and most of the world, we work on the Gregorian calendar, January through December. They worked on a particular calendar which actually began in the month of about mid-March. So from March 15th to about April 15th, that was their first month. And then obviously from April 15th to May would be their second month. So the time of year that we are speaking of in this passage is more equivalent or closer to mid-September or October. This would be a harvest type of feast. And even in the same way that there are harvest feasts today or harvest gatherings today. It's that kind of an idea, a celebration of the provision that has come uh, their way via the hand of God. And during the month of uh, the seventh month, which is called the month of Tishri, there are three Jewish feasts. The first of the Jewish feasts begins on the first day of the month. That's called the Feast of Trumpets. In the United States, we commonly call it, you may have heard of, early feast in September, Jewish feast. Rosh Hashanah, very good. So that would be, it's a long story, but that would be the Jewish New Year, and I know I said it's the seventh month. It's a long story. We'll have lunch together. We'll talk about it, and we can explain it then. The second feast of the seventh month is the Day of Atonement. That takes place somewhere around the 10th of the month. And then finally, you have what's called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. And this is during, it starts on the 15th day of the month. And the Feast of Tabernacle, or the Feast of Booth, is sort of a dedication type of a temple, or um, feast, I should say, which is pretty interesting when you consider that it coincides with the dedication of this temple. Now, the reason that we know that that is what this particular feast is, you have three feasts during the month. How do you know it's that one, Greg? Well, first, if you flip up two chapters, Second Chronicles 7, it says, Now, at the time Solomon held the feast for seven days, and all Israel with him. It was a great assembly from Labo Hamath to the book of Egypt. And on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days in the feast, seven days. And on the 23rd day of the seventh month, and that's the day after the Feast of Tabernacles ends, starts the 15th to the 22nd, 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel and to all of his people. So they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And as I mentioned, it's also called the Feast of Booths. Because what the Jewish people would do, part of the celebration of this particular feast, is that they would build, they would basically go camping in their backyard or out into the wilderness. They would build a structure that the family could gather under, not a nice tent that you and I might go. I understand some people went camping last night, if you can believe that, crazy people here that attend Calvary. Uh, but anyway, they were out camping. But they would build for themselves a structure using you know, the wood and the reeds and all that sort of stuff. And they would purposefully leave kind of holes up in the ceiling. And the idea was as the family is laying there and they're kind of looking up at the ceiling, trying to fall asleep, they'd be able to see through the holes in the ceiling there and they'd see the stars and it would be a reminder to them of the years of wandering in the wilderness. And it would, be, it would speak to them, we don't normally sleep this way and I'm glad we don't. Look how God's hand has brought us to our own land. Look at his provision. So all of, all of this stuff there designed to teach them, it was a reminder of their years of wandering in the desert. And it's interesting that now at this temple dedication, that the Feast of Tabernacle coincides because this wandering people is a wandering people no more. They're in their land. They are secure. 
God had promised Abraham, he had promised a man who at the age of 75 was still fatherless, and he had promised Abraham, I'm going to call you from this place, and I'm going to bring you to a place that you will inherit, and you have many offspring. Another time he would go on and say, you count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Imagine making that sort of a statement to a guy that is 75 with no kids. Another time he says, you see all the sand here on the beach here? They were down at the LBI shore, I believe. He said, you see all the sand here on the beach? Count up the grains of sand if you can. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Again, imagine saying that to a guy that is beyond hope. I'm 75, my wife is 65. I'm 85, my wife is 75. Eventually, he's 99 years old, and his wife is 10 years younger than that, 89 years old, and they don't have this kid. You can imagine there'd be a doubting. So much so that the angels come and they speak into uh, Sarah's life there, and they say, we're going to come back this time next year, you're going to have a kid. She blows off what they're saying, something akin to, yeah, I believed that before, and I won't let my heart believe that again. And the angel said to him, why'd you laugh at that? Why did you, me off, I don't know how how to write that, you know, but (laughs) why, why did you do that? And so, oh, I didn't do that. You did do that. I know your heart. You did do that. And I'll be back. He comes back next year. She's pregnant. She gives birth. She calls the baby, as the angel said, Isaac, which means laughter, her little snarky comment here. But at the same time, she said, because the Lord has put laughter within my heart. The God, God had answered his promise here. And this people that God had said, this will be your land, to a guy that had no kids at such an age that he did, is now in full possession of that land. And here they are, worshiping their God out in the open in this magnificent structure that was built there. Look down to verse 6, because as part of the celebration, it says that there was a great sacrifice. Verse 6 says, And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel, who had assembled before him, they were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not, be numbered. Now, we have seen examples of sacrifices, even in the books of First and Second Chronicles, in which the, the sacrifices would be into the thousands. There's another instance there where it talks about 22, I think it's 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. They numbered those. Here they're saying that they could not be numbered. I think there's, there's maybe a variety of reasons for that, but I think for one is because this sacrifice looks forward to the sacrifice of Christ. And can you, can you really put a number on the sacrifice that Christ did for you and I, the number's beyond computation. And so I think ultimately it's a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. Honestly, what value could you put and place on the work of Christ upon the cross that would justify its worth? You can't. Well, following the sacrifice without number, it says that the ark was moved one last time and it was placed into what is called the Holy of Holies or the inner sanctuary. Look at verse 7. It says, and then the priests, they brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim made a covering above the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside. And there they are to this day. And so there... In the Holy of Holies, remember we talked about in that particular room, you have these 15-foot-tall gold-covered angels that are standing. They're not real angels, but these gold-covered angels that are standing there. And so it says that this ark sits under the shadow of the wings of the cherubim. To be visited only once a year by one man, the high priest, who would come in and he would pour the atonement offering blood over the mercy seat, which would spill over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where the Ark would be visited once a year there, in the Holy of Holies. Verse 10 continues, it says, Now there was nothing in the Ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. Now, there's a lid to this Ark, and inside of that lid you have stuff that can be in there. Another place we learn that inside of the ark was Aaron's rod that budded, a jar of manna, and the two tablets of stone. Something along the way. Remember the Philistines had captured the ark at one point in time. Somewhere along the way, those other two things were taken out, but the tablets of stone remained in there because it says that's all that is in there at this particular point in time. 
The tablets of stone that we are referring to would be what we call the Ten Commandments. This is a reference to the commandments that Moses received. You may recall when Moses went up upon the hill, God gave him these tablets of stone, flat stones, and he himself, it says, carved with his finger in there, thou shalt not. And you know the ten thou shalt nots that we are familiar with, or hopefully you do. We read about in Exodus 31, and it says that God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking to him the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you know that when Moses comes down off of that mountain, he encounters the children of Israel. He had left them for 40 days. And he said to his brother Aaron, he said, you're in charge. Make sure everything works out. And during that time where Aaron was in charge, the people began to worship a golden calf. Moses is like, what is going on here? He actually spoke to his brother, and his brother comes up with a terrible lie, uh, it seems. And he says, well, the people, they, they gave me the gold, we threw it into the fire, and these things popped out. I'm like, come on, man, I've been around the block. I know that's not how it happened here. But it says that Moses took the stones that God himself had carved into the stone and threw them down on the ground, and he broke them. You're like, oh, no. You know, what are you doing, Moses, kind of thing. But you understand his frustration as these people are worshiping this golden calf. Graciously, however, it tells us that God brought Moses back up onto a different mountain at a different time, and he gave him a second set of tablets. And Deuteronomy 10 says that God wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of assembly. And then I, Moses speaking, turned, he came down from the mountain, he put the tablets inside the ark that he had made, that's what we're referring to, and there they are as the Lord had commanded me. So the ark that we're reading about here in First Chronicles, even though we're talking, what's the math, um, 500, 600 years later, we're talking about the same ark and we're talking about those same tablets from Deuteronomy chapter 10 that were placed inside of that box. Look to verse 11. Now in verse 11, there's a parenthesis that takes place which can make the verse a little bit confusing because you're tracking and then you hit this parenthesis and it goes on for three verses and you don't even remember what the sentence began with. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out the parentheses for a second just so we can read the context of the full sentence. It would read like this. It says, when the priest came out of the holy place, and skip now down to the end of the parentheses, and when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever, then the house the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the God. So you can imagine the scene here as all of the priests went into this building and and we'll just call it that. It was a building at this point. All of the priests go in there. They set the ark where it's supposed to be. And then, you know, everyone take one last look because you're not coming in for a while. And then they all kind of walk out, and when they go out, they encounter the worship leaders. Their names are listed there. We learned their names when we were studying the genealogies of First Chronicles. You have Haman, you have Asaph, and you have Jeduthun there. And the worship leaders lead the people in a song. We have the words of the chorus of the song where it says, for he is good and his love endures forever. And then it says that a cloud comes and fills the temple. So we have now transformed, and we won't call it a building anymore. Now we'll call it a temple. We have transformed from this being just some very nice building to being the place where God has chosen for his presence to dwell. Now, interesting, this is just merely a cloud. As you move into chapter 7, you're going to see that fire from God comes down in a different form. But even this cloud that fills the house is enough to drive all men from its presence find it interesting this is the beginning stages of taking this nice building and making it the house of the lord and honestly it's an amazing scene you know we we say the expression that the lord uh inhabits the the praises of his people well this is literal the lord is literally inhabiting the praises of his people as they're singing this song he comes and he dwells there in this temple look on to verse chapter six excuse me as moving to chapter six Solomon is now going to address the crowd. So the priests had done what they're going to do. We're going to see that there was a platform that was constructed in front of the temple. Remember, you have the temple building, the big, big doorway. In front of that doorway is this large uh, altar, the bronze altar. Some 
I forget what we said exactly, 20 by 20 cubits or so, so 30 feet by 30 foot square. Uh, and then in front of that, Solomon will build a platform, something that he can go and stand and address all of the people that had gathered on the hills there leading up to this temple. So if you're familiar with the Temple Mount, do not think of the large, flat Temple Mount that is there today. Those that have been there, those that have seen pictures of it, that wasn't built until Herod's day during the time of Jesus. And so, or before the time of Jesus, but near the time of Jesus. We're still talking about a hill, a mountain. And so people are gathered on the edges of that mountain, and Solomon will climb up on top of this particular platform that he constructed, and he will begin to address the crowd. He's going to address the thousands of people that have gathered in front of him, maybe hundreds of thousands. All of the leaders, the tribal leaders from the 12 tribes. All of the priests he's going to speak to. All the military leaders. All of the musicians that have gathered. The temple officials. The gatekeepers. The the people that have just come uh, as worshipers that have come there. He's going to gather and speak to all of these people there on the slopes of Mount Moriah. And he begins in verses 1 and 2 and he says this. He says, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. But I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. Now, the thick darkness that Solomon is speaking of can be found in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. That's the place where Moses got the Ten Commandments that I referenced earlier. And there you have a verse that says, The people stood far off <clears throat> excuse me, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The people said to Moses, you go up on the hill. We'll stay here. You go talk to God. You tell us what he says. But if we go any closer, we're going to die. And God actually, at one point, he said, you know, that's, that, that's true. He says, make sure nobody comes near. Their animal comes wandering up here. Don't come step foot on this hill because they will die. And so Moses would go up and he would meet with God. Now we think, well, Moses is a remarkable fellow. But it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that even Moses was terrified to be in the presence of of God. So it says there, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So the dwelling place of God upon the earth at that time was referred to as a place of thick darkness. It was a place of fear. It was a place of trembling. It was a place of apprehension. And Solomon is aware of that. And so now Solomon is saying, you have said you would dwell in thick darkness, but I have built you a house Essentially, what Solomon is trying to do is, let me just get my head around this idea. How could it possibly be that the God of all the earth could dwell in a building that was made by the people that he himself created? That doesn't make any sense. Previously, the presence of God in Solomon's mind was inapproachable, and yet now there's a temple where people could come and they could approach God through the sacrificial system. He doesn't get it. But anyway, the the story continues in verse 3, and Solomon now is going to begin to pronounce a blessing over the people that have gathered. Here's this king, and he's going to bless the people. It says, Then the king turned around, and he blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people... Out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes in Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people. But now I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. So what Solomon is doing, you can imagine, all the people have gathered, and he begins this prayer slash message to the people. And in doing so, he reminds them of how they got here. He reminds them of how God led the nation out of slavery, how through Joshua God led the people into the land, the promised land that was formerly the land of Canaan, which would become the land of Israel. He reminds them how he raised up a shepherd boy and he made him king. And he reminds them of how he spoke to David and said, you're going to rule from a place, from Jerusalem, and there my house will be built. He reminds them of these things. Now he continues in verse 7. And it says, Solomon says, Now it was in the heart of, of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build the house, but your son who shall be born to you. He shall build the house for my name. Now, previously we spent time with this. This was First Chronicles chapter 17. 
And there, David had the idea, I want to build a temple for the Lord. He spoke to one of the prophets, a man by the name of Nathan. He said, let's build it. And Nathan says, great idea, go for it. Then as Nathan was leaving, driving home to his house, God said to him, why would you tell him to go for it? I didn't tell him to go for it. You need to go back and have that awkward conversation where you say to him, God said, you're not allowed to do it. I'm sorry. And so Nathan went back there, and he did it, and he told him. But in that process, you would think David would be dejected and all sad and, and all that sort of stuff, and he probably was to some degree. But in there, God said to him, David, even though you're not going to build this temple for me, I'm going to build a house for you. And through your lineage, a great king will come, ultimately looking past Solomon all the way to the Lord Jesus. And he made this promise to him. But in that whole process, he said, your son will build a house for me. And at least to some degree, he was referencing Solomon there. But it, would you notice for a second verse 8 there? Because in verse 8 it says, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well, that it was in your heart. Isn't that interesting? David didn't actually build the house, but God looked at the condition of David's heart and the desire of David's heart. You know, in the book of Genesis, in G- Genesis chapter 22, when, when God spoke to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and I want you to take him and I want you to go and I want you to sacrifice him. And the scripture, amazingly, I, I can't imagine, says that Abraham rose up early the next day and he went to do that. He was prepared to do that. And he bound his son and he took a knife, the scripture says, and as he was about to slay his son, because God told him to, not fully even understanding what all that meant, God said, stop. I don't want you to do it. I never wanted you to do it. But I was testing your heart. You see, the condition of Abraham's heart is what he was interested in. Essentially, he was saying to him in this act, he was saying, Abraham, does your love for everything else, everything else, even your son Isaac, who was given to you in your 100th year, does all of that pale in comparison to your love to me? Are you truly willing, Jesus would say it this way in the New Testament, are you truly willing, Abraham, to leave father and mother and brother and sister and to leave all these things to come and to follow me? What's your heart, he said to Abraham. You remember in the New Testament in Mark, I think it's chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, you have the story of the widow. And she comes walking in, old lady comes walking in uh, there to the temple area, and she brings an offering, it says. Now, the offering that she brings are two small coins. And the passage even tells us two small coins totals about a penny. And she offers it there. Now, think about it. Really, what had she done? she come and she brought a penny? She came, I should say, and brought a penny? What are we going to do with a penny? You can stay home for that particular offering. We don't really need the penny, but thank you anyway. But that's not what the passage says. It says Jesus kind of pokes his buddies uh, beside him. He says, you see that lady there? And this is what it says in Mark 12. He says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything that she had, all that she had to live on. The idea was that her heart had given millions of dollars, if you want to think of it that way. Her heart, the condition of her heart. And so I think there's a a lesson here for us. You know, you and I, or church, whatever it may be, we may not have grand opportunities to do all sorts of big things for God or whatever it may be, but what is your heart's desire? Is it your heart's desire to do something for him? He sees that, and he is pleased by that, the scripture says. He takes notice of it, and he is pleased by it. So don't let yourself be discouraged. Now, it doesn't mean, well, it's my heart, you know, so I don't do anything or whatever, because my heart, the Lord knows my heart. Yeah, he does know your heart, so make sure your heart longingly desires to be a blessing to the Lord and please the Lord, and he'll see that. So David never had an opportunity to build the temple, but that didn't mean that God was any less pleased with him. Now, if you move on to verse 10, Solomon continues verse 10, and and he says this, Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father, and I sit upon the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have set the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. David had it in his heart, but God said no. He said no, but your son. And now here is David's son standing in front of the completed work. God had proven faithful to his word. The Lord was faithful. 
And Solomon reminds the people of that. And in a sense, he reminds God of that, as you'll see in a few moments. It goes on, it says, Now Solomon stands upon this platform. This is verse 12. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands. Solomon had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, three cubits high, and he stood upon it, and then he knelt on his knees in the presence of the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward God. Could you imagine? I don't know if any of you caught that picture of the presidential inauguration uh, back in January of this year. And President Obama and, and all the people that were associated, they did what they were supposed to do, you know, to uh, bring about the second uh, term and all that. And as President Obama was leaving, you may recall, he was walking back into the Capitol building and he stopped and he turned around and he said to the folks, he said, oh, I just want to take this in for a second. And he, he looked out, I don't know how many people, hundreds of thousands of people that had gathered there. And, and that's the closest thing I can think to, to this sort of an event here. Hundreds of thousands of people that had gathered. And there is the king. There's President Obama. There's the king, if you will, standing upon that platform. And he's saying this prayer. And then imagine if President Obama or someone like that would get down on his knees and raise his hands up to heaven and pray a prayer like this. Wouldn't that be remarkable? Unbelievable. You'd be shocked. He'd get in trouble, I'm sure. You know, and there'd be all sorts of things said about him and, and things like that. But here is Solomon leading the people down upon his knees, hands raised above. And here's his prayer, verse 14. It says, O Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven or in earth, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand, you have fulfilled it this day. I'd recommend highlight that or underline that in your Bibles, because that's the same way that God works in your life today. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk in my law, as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. Now, it speaks here of the word that was spoken or the promise that was made to David. That promise, we would call that in the scripture a covenant. And there are a number of different covenants that are found in the scripture. So there's the Adamic or Adam, the covenant that is made to Adam, or the Noahic, which was made to Noah, or the Mosaic made to Moses, or the Davidic, which was made to David, or the new covenant, which we speak of in the book of Jeremiah. There's these covenants that God has made with a person or a people. And God made a covenant to David when he pulled this shepherd boy and Samuel there anointed David and said, you're going to be the king of Israel. He made a covenant to him. And a portion of that covenant is that David's family would never lack a man upon the throne. Now, we know that there were periods of time where the nation of Israel had no throne. They were taken off into captivity and all these sorts of things. But ultimately, as the people, and, and you can look at the verse there, it says, if only your sons pay close attention to me. So the contract was broken, we know, and, and there's more context to the story that we don't have time to share, but the contract was broken by the sons of David. But God didn't ultimately break the contract because there is a descendant of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, literal descendant of David when he was born in the flesh, who will sit upon the throne the Scripture promises for us and we read about in the book of revelation and other places so here in this passage though verses 14 to 17 solomon is reminding god of his faithfulness essentially he's saying god you've been faithful before be faithful again keep your covenants now he continues his prayer and it's almost again as if he's trying to get his head around this idea that god would dwell in a building look at verse 18 he says but will God indeed dwell with man upon the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? He can't bring it in. But he continues, verse 19, he says, But yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to the plea, his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place 
and listen from heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, he says, forgive. So if you put verses 19 through 21 with verse 18, essentially Solomon is saying, I don't get it. I don't understand how you could dwell in some place upon the earth. But that's what you said. That's what you've chosen to do. So God, when people pray, then you listen. He's saying here. Now it sounds kind of like he's ordering God around here. But he's taking God at his word. God said he would. God, you're faithful to your word. So then God, even though I don't get it, would you do that? And then in verse 2, he continues to pray. And now he's going to go into, through the end of the chapter, a list of things that may be reasons why the people will look toward the temple or why the Jewish people would pray. So starting in verse 22, notice the first couple of words. He says, if a man sins. You see, we're all going to sin, the scripture says. It says it a little bit later here in the same passage here, because all of us have sinned, it said. Paul would say in the New Testament, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the idea is that we would sin. Now, in you and I, in our economy of working with people, if you wrong me, my response is, well, you know what? I'm going to wrong you back. Or we made an agreement, but you broke the agreement. So I'm done with you, and I'm moving on. So Solomon begins with, he says, look, your people have an agreement. We have an agreement. We have this covenant, God, the Mosaic covenant here, this law. And when we break it, and yet we turn to this temple and we pray, would you hear us, he says. Now, here, here's some of the examples. He says, if a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and he swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So the idea there being is you and I, went, two people on the earth, we went into an agreement and he broke his agreement. And when one guy comes to God and says, Lord, bring about justice, it's just not fair. Hear that prayer, he says. Moving on to verse 24, he says, If your people Israel are defeated before the enemy, because they have sinned against you, and they turn again and acknowledge your name, and they pray and they plead with you in this house, then hear from heaven. Notice, from heaven. God doesn't live in that building. He lives in heaven, ultimately, there. His presence is omnipresent, certainly. But he says, Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave them. So we have this first this idea of personal injustice in the first set of verses. Now we move on to this idea of national calamity. There's war that is taking place. The people are being defeated in that war, and they cry out to God for his mercy. Solomon says, Lord, when that happens, hear their prayer. Chapter 6, verse 26, it goes on. It says, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name, and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. And when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. And so when drought comes upon the land of Israel, and look at the the surrounding environment of the Middle East, and you see the effect of the lack of rain. Interesting, when you fly into Israel, you just see the the rich vegetation of the nation, as God has poured out his hand of blessing even to this day upon the nation here. But the point of this particular thing is when a drought comes upon the land as a result of the sin of the people, and they finally cry out to God, hear them, he says. Verse 28, if there's famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, all these things that will destroy vegetation and so on, if, there's en- if their enemies besiege them in the land of their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction and his own sorrow and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways for you and you only know the hearts of the children of mankind that they may fear you and that they may walk in your ways all the days that they live in the land that you have given to their fathers." Now, it's important to remember here that Solomon is reminding God of the covenants that God had made with his people. So these people, these Jewish people, they are a people that are living under what we would refer to as the Old Testament covenant. Another name for that is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that was made 
to Moses. And the covenant that was made to Moses, you can read about it in uh, the books of Moses there, those first five books, but the covenant that was made to Moses can basically be summed up with these words. Do this and you will be blessed. Do this and you will experience curse. That's, that's how you could sum up the covenant that was made to Moses. Deuteronomy 28, if you wanted to read there, just a couple of verses in that passage, it says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Do this, and I will bless you. He continues that passage. You can read the whole chapter, but it, it, it gives, starts giving examples. If you do this, and I bless you, you'll experience that. And it goes on and gives all these examples. And then in verse 15, he says, but if you will not obey, the voice of the Lord your God, and be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you. And interesting, if you read from verse uh, 16, Deuteronomy 28, 16 to the end of the chapter, the curses that you begin to read about are personal injustice, are famine, are pestilence, are drought, are defeat to the enemy in wars, all these things that Solomon is talking about. So Solomon has in mind in this prayer, this chapter of his Bible. So in regard to the law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant, it's an economy of blessing and cursing. Moses would say to the people this. This is Deuteronomy 30. He says, now when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have kind of laid out before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey his voice with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. So there's blessing and there's cursing. Now it's important to note here, what is the purpose of God's judgment, the curses that I'm referring to? What's the purpose of that? I'm sure most of us in here are like, I don't like this. I like the blessing idea. Talk more about that. I don't think I'm comfortable with this idea of cursing. We live in a New Testament economy, and what that means is a different way of working. That doesn't, however, mean, though, that in our lives we do not feel the consequences of sin. And so in your life, you, things may be going very hard and very difficult. And a lot of times you can trace that back many times. Not always, but many times you can trace that back to a sin in your life, something you're doing, some decision that you made, and now you're feeling the consequences of it. Or, sadly, sometimes you can trace that back to the sin of your parents or the sin of somebody else. So somebody comes in, breaks into your house, and does something to your home, you didn't necessarily do anything wrong, but you have to deal with that. And you're like, this stinks, I don't like it here. But the consequence, or the purpose of the consequences of sin is always so that the people would repent. You see, this is very, very important. So God blessing, people around are watching, observing, and saying, man, the Israelite people, that's amazing what's going on over there. Sure wish I was Israelite. Well, you know, you can come and join the club if you want and become a proselyte, and so on. That's the purpose of the blessing, so that they'd be an example to the world. But the purpose of the cursing is for the person themselves that is being cursed. And quite honestly, you can sum it up with the movie. Remember the movie Airplane? And the lady's freaking out on the plane, and she's like, I'm not going to make it, that kind of thing. And there's that long line of people that comes along, and the, the one is slapping her in the face, and come on, snap out of it, kind of thing. Another guy's there with the lead pipe, and, and so on and so forth, all the way back. The idea is this, when somebody slaps you on the face because you're freaking, you know, and you, you just can't get control and they come and they slap you and they wake you up, that's the purpose of the consequences of our sin. And so when the heavy hand of God is upon us and we're feeling it, or the, the Jewish people there are feeling it and the circumstances are such that they're finally slapped across their face, they're brought to their senses. And they say something to the effect of, what am I doing? How did I get here? I'm the people of God. We're the people of God. And yet, look. And then they, they go back down the trail and they realize, you know what? It is my sin that brought me here. You remember in the New Testament when Jesus was speaking to a Jewish culture, Jewish people. He was a Jew, Jesus was. And speaking there to this Jewish people, he told them the parable of the prodigal son. It's found in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, it says that when this young man woke up, after this riotous living and all this sort of stuff that he was going through, he had spent all of his money on partying and so on. 
And all of his friends had left him. And he had no place to stay and he had no job. And he found himself looking at a group of pigs that were eating better than he was. And the scripture says that he came to his senses. It was his circumstances that drove him back to God. And in the story of the parable, the father figure, the God figure, if you will, is his dad. And he makes his way home to his dad. And there his dad is standing. The scripture says that his dad runs out to meet him. What a great picture that is of our Heavenly Father, isn't it? That even though we have blown it royally, we have made a mess of ourselves in our lives, and everything about it stinks, and there's nothing good, and yet when we decide, you know what, I'm returning to God, that there he is. And the passage even says that the Father came running to meet the Son. Remember, the wealthier a man was, the longer the robe and the gowns and all this sort of stuff, and the pomp and the circumstance that went with it. And here is a dignified man that would hike up his robe his dress his skirt and he would run out humiliating himself quite honestly and he would run out and he would embrace his son and didn't jesus humiliate himself for you and i humbled himself to the point of becoming a created being a man was beaten was bruised was mocked was spit upon was thrown upon a cross for you and i he humbled himself because he loved us And when circumstances of life were such that we knew our need and we looked to the cross and we said, would you forgive me? He said, I will. I died for you. So the circumstances of life here bring the people to their senses. You know, Robin, my wife, uh, she did the announcements, I think, last week or two weeks ago, and she mentioned that a group of people from the church went to uh, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association chaplaincy training program that took place down in philadelphia and you know when you think about and one of the statements that was made there was and and i've heard conflicting reports one person said 70 percent somebody else said 80 percent my wife said 80 percent so i'm going to believe her uh, because i don't want to get in trouble Um, but anyway said that 80 70 80 percent of people on a given day are in the state of crisis something is going on in their lives not necessarily a hurricane sandy but they lost their job Their mother just called and said she has cancer. They're about to get a divorce. They're in a state of personal crisis that is going on in their lives, 80% of the people. And it's fascinating when you consider this. If you look at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, now Billy Graham is 90-something now, and Parkinson's is uh, really taking its effect on him. He really can't go out and do any sort of uh, preaching ministry like he did over the last 50, 60 years of, uh, of his ministry. But it's fascinating to consider What is the BGEA, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, what are they pouring themselves into now? And if you you look at what, and they're doing things, they're putting stuff on TV, you know, old sermons and stuff that he gave, but what they're pouring themselves into is this crisis training, rapid response chaplaincy program. And one of their goals, they have said, is that everyone within the church would be trained in this way. Why? Because 80% of our population is in crisis. And do you have the words to be able to speak and to minister into that person's life? Because when a person is in crisis, the heart is wide open. I'm looking for answers. All of these trinkets that are around me, my nice job, my nice house, my children are doing well, the great schools, the fun entertainment on TV, all of these trinkets that are around them have been found to be worthless in the midst of that that crisis. And you and I, we have the words to speak in to that person's life. We find that it's a crisis like that that brings a person to their senses. And so the way in which God worked in this Old Testament covenant was, do these things and I'll bless you. Do these things and I'll curse you. But it doesn't end there. I will bring you a a curse upon you so that you will repent. Well, Solomon reminds God here of his promises. Essentially, you could say, God, you told Moses that you would hear and that you would forgive if we ever found ourselves in this situation. So God, I'm going to hold you to that, is what he says to him. Skip down to verse 40. This is how Solomon ends his prayer. He says, Now, O my God, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O Lord God, go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priest, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face 
of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. Let's pray. Father, we, we are grateful that your character is so faithful, Lord, that we can actually call you on that and hold you to that because you will not be changed. Lord, we thank you for your word. Father, we want to be a people that trust you in such a way. Lord, ultimately, your message to us is that we are a people that are forgiven and that you're going to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives who will teach us and direct us and guide us. Father, we know as we come to you, we're not perfect, that we fall short of the glory of God. We miss the mark that you have established. But Lord, you promise us in your word that if we confess our sin, that you're faithful, you're just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And Father, we're not asking that you would keep us from the heavy hand of sin, the consequences, because Lord, we know that those consequences are your mercy that you use to drive us back to yourself. And so Father, this morning, I just want to pray for those that may be with us that have been playing with sin. Minimizing it. Looking at your grace as unworthy, quite honestly, of repentance. Because God will forgive anyway. They reason, Lord. Father, we ask that today, this next week, this next month, Lord, that you would put your hand upon their lives in such a way to drive them to repentance. And then, Father, as they come to their senses in turn, Lord, that they would be embraced by a God that loves them so incredibly and only wants good. Lord, you are so incredibly good and loving and kind. And Father, we thank you for your great burden for each of us. We pray in Jesus' name.